I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you will know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you will know that it is near, right at your door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. An author named Ron Mel told the following story in one of his books. I just want to share it with you, basically word for word. Uh, he tells the story of a man named Roger Sims. Uh, Roger says he would never forget the date. He got discharged from the army on May 6th, so he knows the story happened on May 7th, the day after he got discharged. He had his suitcase in his hand, and he was hitchhiking his way home from the army, and he was shocked at his good luck when he hadn't been hitchhiking very long when this new, slick, black Cadillac pulls over, and the, the passenger door flies open, and so he, he jogs up and throws his suitcase in the back and slides in the front. The guy says, you going home for good or for keeps, I think, he said. And, and Roger said, I sure am. And the, the obviously wealthy, well-dressed businessman driving said, well, if you're going all the way to Chicago, you're in luck. And Roger said, I'm not, but I'm going almost to Chicago. Uh, and so the guy promised to take him all the way home, which apparently was quite a ways. Well, they talked for a long time. They hit it off rather well. The, the, the businessman, his name was, was Mr. Hanover, who was obviously successful. Um, he had a, a business called Hanover Industries in Chicago. And Roger, as they got closer and closer to his home, as a Christian, Roger just started to feel the, the, this desire to share the message of the gospel with Mr. Hanover. And he was chickening out, and he was chickening out, and he just felt this, this desire grow until he's like, you know, I'm, we're only about a half an hour from my house. I got, if I'm going to do this, i got to do this. So he took a deep breath, and he said, Mr. Hanover, I want to talk to you about something very important. I've enjoyed our conversation. I don't want this to get weird. 
But I want to talk to you about something very important. And he began to share the message of the gospel with this Mr. Hanover. At which point, Mr. Hanover pulled that Cadillac to the side of the road and stopped. Roger thought he was being kicked out, but at least he got most of the way home before he shared the gospel. That's not what was happening. Mr. Hanover put that caddy in park, put his head on the steering wheel and began to cry. And right there on the shoulder of the highway, made Jesus Christ his savior. Through tears, he told Roger, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Five years went by. Roger Sims had started a, a little business and a little family. And his business was taking him to Chicago. And he got his little suitcase out that he brought home from the army. And as he opened it up, he found Mr. Hanover's business card in there. And he thought, you know, I'm just going to take some time. I've got his address. As long as his business is still there, I'm going to look up Mr. Hanover, see how he's doing. Is he walking with the Lord? Does he have a church? I just, I just really want to see this guy. So he does, stops, walks in, finds a receptionist in this nice place. And he says, this, I really don't have an appointment, but I just wanted to, Mr. Hanover gave me a ride and I just, I just wanted to check, check in on him. And the receptionist said, well, you can't see Mr. Hanover, but his wife is here. And I think she would probably see you. And in a minute, he was escorted into a very nice office. And here's a rather serious looking woman in her 60s. who says, so you know my husband. He begins to tell the story five years ago, discharged from the army, hitchhiking. He left out the gospel part because, you know, you don't want things to get weird. Do you know the date, she asked. He said, oh, I'll never forget. I got discharged on May 6th. This was May 7th, five years ago. She said, can you tell me anything else about that ride home? Said, well, he said to himself, I've come this far. I just will tell her. He said, uh, before he took me to my house, I want, I'm a Christian, and I shared the gospel with your husband, and he accepted Christ. That's why I'm here. I want to see how he's... I was doing in his walk. Mrs. Hanover burst into tears. And he sort of saw where this was going. And he said, Mrs. Hanover, where's your husband? And she said, he's dead. He died May 7th, five years ago. We never knew why he got off the highway and why he died where he died. She said, but I've left the church. Because I prayed for years and years and years that God would save my husband. I believed that he would. But for the last five years, I've been bitter and angry at God and left the church. Because I was convinced he hadn't answered my prayer. When apparently he had all along. Just like the car crash that killed Mr. Hanover, right after he had come to know Jesus as Savior, sometimes it's hard to tell that God is working, even though God is working. Sometimes it's hard to tell that God is saving, that God is being gracious, that God is working, even though that's exactly what God is doing from our human perspective. Sometimes it's really, really, sometimes it's impossible to see 
what God is doing. The second coming of Christ is a little bit like that. We were promised in the New Testament that one day Jesus is going to return to earth. But it sure has taken him a while. He sure is taking his time, isn't he? Which is a good thing for us, those of us who are alive now, I think. And sometimes it's, you know, it's been, oh, been 2,000 years. And it's easy to start to think, I mean, can we really be sure that's the way this is going to end? I mean, can we really be sure that God still has a plan for the end of this world? Or for me? Two weeks ago now, we started Matthew chapter 24 in our study through the book of Matthew. And at the beginning of that chapter, the disciples asked Jesus a couple of questions about the second coming of Christ. And I don't think they understood very much. I thought they were just thinking about Jesus maybe even during his life. They never seemed to grasp that he was serious about that whole prediction that he was going to be killed and rise again. I think they, they thought, when are you going to go back into Jerusalem and take the throne? When are you going to return to Jerusalem? When are you coming back? When will the age end? And what is the sign that will let us know that that's going to happen? And those are questions we and people like us have wanted to know for 2,000 years. When will the end begin? And how will we know that we're getting close? Those two questions set Jesus off on a long teaching with just him and his disciples. He was sitting down on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse where he responded to the disciples' questions. When are you coming back? And how will we know it's getting close? What will the sign be? Briefly, here's what we've learned so far. Jesus taught first that in the gap of time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when he will return, this world's going to be awfully scary. There's going to be things like wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and persecutions and murders and all kinds of terrible stuff. And Jesus said, none of that means it's the end. The end is still to come. We, here in the church age, we cannot look around at the surroundings around us and find clues about the end of the world, no matter what some preacher somewhere might say. Our job is not to look for clues and not to concern ourselves with the timing of his return. Our job is to not let our love grow cold. Keep loving other people during scary situations so that the gospel of Christ might spread to the ends of the earth. That was the first section of the Olivet Discourse. Then last week, Jesus gave some teaching about a very specific period of time that's right before he does come back. He said, but when you see the abomination of desolation, and last week I said, the abomination of desolation is like the starter pistol for the last 42 months this earth has in it. It'll be a time when a, a charismatic world leader does something abominable on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and then things get real bad real fast. Jesus taught us about that last week, and that will culminate 
And Jesus' return to earth. And Jesus said he will return in a way that not one single person who is alive will miss. No one will miss the second coming of Christ. Which means, has the second coming of Christ happened already? Yes or no? No. He's not just reigning in our hearts. And this is the kingdom we were promised. No. Because most people don't, would have missed it. And he said it will be like being out in a, in a night sky and there's lightning from east to west. Filling up the whole sky. You just, you can't possibly miss it. Well, that's what he's taught so far. But Jesus didn't tell us when that abomination of desolation starter pistol thing will happen. And today he's going to tell us we can't know. It's one of the things we just can't know. God doesn't tell us everything we want to know. Not about anything, and not about the way this world will come to an end. But there are things about the second coming of Christ we can know. And God has told us what he wants us to know. And so today, in Matthew 24, 32 through 44, even though it's hard to tell that God is working things out toward this end, he is. And Jesus wants us to know three things about the second coming of Christ. And then he's going to tell us how these three things should affect us today. The three things are that the second coming of Christ is certain. Um, it will be sudden. You know, the timing we can't know. And the last thing is, I put violent on the screen just to fit it in the sermon, in the sermon title. But really what he says is the second coming will be like the Genesis flood of Genesis chapter 7. So there's our three things. The second coming is certain. It's going to be sudden. And in some ways it's going to be like the Genesis flood of chapter 7. Let's see how Jesus teaches us those things and then what we can learn from it. First in verses 32 through 35, Jesus taught that his return is an absolute Certainty. You can bank on it. And he taught this by using a fig tree as an illustration. Now, it hasn't been very long in the story of Matthew. It's been a lot of sermons. But back in chapter 21, Jesus pointed at a fig tree which during this last week of his life. So it's only been days since Jesus pointed at a different fig tree. And that fig tree symbolized the nation of Israel. So before we start, I want you to know what the fig tree here in chapter 24 symbolizes. You ready? This fig tree symbolizes a fig tree. Okay? It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a symbol for anything. It's just a tree. Don't make this harder than it needs to be. Here's what Jesus does. He takes something, fig trees were apparently all over the place. He take, it's a very familiar thing in the disciples' life. And he wants to teach them about the certainty of the second coming by using something they all know. Here's what he says. Learn this from fig trees. Boys, you know how, by the way, even in a Mediterranean climate, when it doesn't get very cold, fig trees lose their leaves in the winter. And then the springs, in the spring, they get leaves back. Jesus says, boys, you know how when 
fig tree branches, the sap starts to flow through them and they're not brittle anymore and they start to soften up and then you see buds and the, and the, the fig trees are starting to get leaves. Oh yeah, we know that, Jesus. You know how when you see that, you can be absolutely certain that summer's coming? Yeah. That's what my return's like. It's an absolute certainty. Just as certain as you can be that summer is coming when you see uh, the leaves on fig trees, you can be that certain that I will come. But remember, what do the disciples really want to know? They want to know when. And he's still kind of answering that question. So in verse 33, he says, So also you, when you see all these things, you can know that the Son of Man, you can know that he is near right at the door. Now here is a weakness in the way we preach through books, or the way I preach through books. I say we like, like you guys are at fault here too. I know it's my fault. We might not remember what all these things mean because it's been a whole week since I told you what all these things he was talking about was. That's the whole abomination of desolation starter pistol, the great tribulation, the last 42 months of earth, all the violence, the, 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 the worst of the worst this earth had to offer. Here's what Jesus said. When people see all those things, they can know that, I'm, that it's really, really close. It's absolute certain, but we don't necessarily know we're really, really close until we see all these things, which we haven't seen. Then Jesus says, verse 34, this is the confusing one in the passage. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What's that mean? That, that's a confusing one. Because we can read that and think, wait a minute, Jesus just predicted that all these things would happen before his generation of folks died. So it reads like Jesus just predicted all this stuff's going to happen in the next 50 years. Did all that stuff happen within that 50 years? No. So what's this mean? We really have four, four options. I'm not going to tell you which. I'll tell you which one I like. I'm going to tell you one you shouldn't believe. And then I'm going to give you three options. You can pick whatever you want from there. And I'm fine with any of the other three. But there's four ways we can understand this verse. First, you could understand that Jesus was predicting that the world would end within 50 years and he just missed it. There are people who believe that. I reject that one for two main reasons. One is my personal convictions and one is from the context. One reason I do not believe Jesus was predicting that the world would end in 50 years and he just messed it up is because that would make Jesus a false prophet and I can't go there. My theology keeps me from going there. But the next verse I have up here on the screen, verse 36, in that verse, Jesus is going to say very clearly, I don't know when my return will be. So if verse 34 is a prediction that Jesus misses, like two verses later, he says he doesn't know when it will be. So I can't believe that Jesus would say, I believe it's going to be in the next 50 years. I promise it's going to be in the next 50 years. And two sentences later say, by the way, I have no idea when it's going to be. So I have to throw that one out. 
So now it leaves us three possibilities. Here's one. Um, Jesus could be saying somehow in here that everything that needs to happen before the end begins will have happened before the people of his day die during that next 50 years. And that is true. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. But if you've ever heard the return of Jesus uh, described as being imminent, uh, here's what that means. We don't know when, but we know it could happen at any time. That's absolutely true. We're going to see that in the Olivet Discourse. I just don't think that's what Jesus was saying here. Um, Because, again, he said, all the, the all these things of verse 34 have to be the same, all these things of verse 33, and the all these things he's talking about is the stuff he's talked about in this chapter. And all that stuff hasn't happened. So we have two more options. That's a biblical thing to believe, what I just described. I just don't think he's teaching it here. The next one, and this is the one, this is the interpretation of Matthew 24, 34, that my Greek professor in seminary believes. And Dr. Neil Nelson knows more about the Olivet Discourse than any human being I know of. Uh, Here's his idea. He believes, well, somehow this generation must not mean the people who are alive in Jesus' day. Has to. Or he's a false prophet. One or the other. Here's what Dr. Nelson does. Dr. Nelson would tell you, if you read not just through the Gospels, but through the whole New Testament, and you highlight every place a writer in the New Testament says this generation, here's what you will find. You'll find this generation always refers to not everybody who's alive. This generation is used sort of like how we use the world and how we are separate from the world. This generation are the opponents of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Dr. Nelson taught us what Jesus means here is that that sort of folks will always be around until I return. There will always be opponents of the gospel until all these things take place and I return. And then the last understanding of this verse uh, goes something like this. If you look up here at verse 33, Jesus said, when you see all these things, who are the people who will see all these things take place? The people who are alive, the abomination of desolation, the time of Antichrist, the people who are alive in the great tribulation. I think Jesus is saying, this is the generation that will not pass away until everything I have talked about takes place. That's what I think is the easiest way to understand this. So I'll reword this and tell you what I think Jesus is saying. He just taught abomination of desolation, 42 months of violence and terribleness. Then the sun's going to go dark. The moon's going to go dark. The stars are going to go dark. People are going to see the sign of the Son of Man. And then the return of Jesus will happen. I think Jesus says the people who start to see all these things happen, it's going to go very quickly. The people who are alive at the starting pistol that generation of people will still be alive when I return. It might take a long time before the end begins, but once God begins the end, things unravel very quickly after that. 
That's where I go with a difficult verse. And then Jesus finishes this little paragraph this way in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see what he's saying right there? He's saying what I'm promising here is an absolute certainty. Everything I just taught, my words I've just told you, are more sure and more certain and more permanent than creation itself. Which is, which is likelier? Which is likelier? Is that a word? I don't think that's a word. Which is more likely? That heaven and earth will cease to exist all at once or Jesus' words to not be, not be true? See the device he uses right there? It's an absolute certainty that what I've just been teaching you culmination being his second coming will happen. So that's the first thing Jesus teaches today is that his return is an absolute certainty. Second thing Jesus teaches today comes in verse 36. So Jesus has been teaching, hey, you can know that there is a nearness to his return. It can happen at any time. But don't get me wrong. I don't want to be misunderstood. Jesus, I believe, knows is speaking a little bit ambiguously. He wants to leave people, I believe, with the impression that maybe he could come back at any time. Because that's true. But he says, don't get me wrong. About the day or the hour, no one knows. The angels in heaven don't know. I, as the Son of God, don't know. God the Father is the only being who knows the timing of the second coming. Have I beat that horse over the last three weeks a little bit? I mean, that horse has been dead, and I'm still beating that horse, but Jesus does. Again, if Jesus didn't know when, should you listen to anybody who tries to tell you they know when? No. At least just being deceived. I do want to point one thing out. This, this is a remarkable thing Jesus says here. Jesus just admitted that there's at least one thing he doesn't know, he didn't know. Now, whether or not he knows that now, I don't know. But at one point, Jesus did not know the timing of his return. Here's why I think that's interesting. This helps me believe in the validity of the Gospels, that they are what they present themselves to be. Do you believe that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written by eyewitnesses of the accounts that took place, or in Luke's case, written uh, as like a research paper collected from eyewitnesses. Do you believe that? Because if you watch the History Channel, the History Channel will tell you that the Gospels were written hundreds of years later by people who just took the best legends about Jesus and put them all in one place. In, in even... Um, in scholarly circles, that's going away, by the way, for reasons I won't go into, but there's a really underrated proof that this was written by, this is an eyewitness account who's just writing down what happened. And here's why. Matthew told us that this story of his, we go back to the very beginning of the book of Matthew, he said, I'm going to tell you the story about Jesus, who is two things. You remember? Uh, he's, the, he's the Christ, the Savior, and he's divine, he's God. Son of God. Now, if you were writing a book, especially hundreds of years later, 
And you were just going to put information in that supported your idea of what this man Jesus was about. And you want to convince people that this man was God. You don't put that sentence in your book. Because one of God's attributes is that how, much, how many things does God know? He knows everything. It's called omniscience. So if you're trying to convince readers that the main character of your book is God, you probably don't want to put a list of things he doesn't know in the book. Right? Doesn't that seem counterproductive to your argument? So here's what we're seeing here. This is an example of what's called the kenosis. That's a theological term. The kenosis is the self-limiting or the self-emptying of Jesus. Paul gives us the best look at this at the kenosis in, in Philippians 2, where Paul said this, when Jesus left the throne of the universe and it was time for him to become human and became an unborn baby and then he became a born baby and then he grew up and became a man. Paul tells us, that Jesus didn't think his equality with God the Father, which he had, was something he should hold on to when he became fully human. So Paul uses a word that means emptying. So he emptied himself, and he became just like a servant of God, just like you or I should be a servant of God. This is a definition of, the, of this concept from um, a guy out in Colorado, a New Testament scholar, um, whose name escapes me right now and I can't find it in my notes, uh, Blomberg, Craig Blomberg. He said this was the decision by Jesus where he voluntarily limited the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Jesus voluntarily and for a limited time while he was alive in his earthly ministry, he limited the independent exercise of his divine attributes. So there was at least one thing he didn't know. This is why we read of Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit to go somewhere. If you know everything, why would you need to be led anywhere? Right? Now, Jesus obviously had divine attributes right? because he was worked miracles. But that's what we see in this verse right here, an example of... Jesus is self-limiting. There's at least one thing he didn't know. But the second thing that, that Jesus teaches us about his second coming here is that the timing of it is uncertain. That's the main point from this verse. And then the last thing Jesus teaches about his second coming is that somehow his return will be similar to the flood of Genesis 7. It's what he says in verse 37. For just like the days of Noah were, that's how the coming of the Son of Man will be. There's some similarities between the flood of Noah's day and the second coming. How are those two things similar? That's what he, that's what he explains. Here's how the two things are similar. In 38 and 39, For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and then people went, sure is raining a lot. Right? And the earth just exploded and all that stuff. Here's how Jesus' second coming will be similar to what we read in Genesis 7. Everyone will miss the warning signs and not see it coming. In Noah's day, there was one main warning that God was about to destroy the whole earth with a flood. 
You know what that warning was? Noah, the only God follower around, was building a humongous floating storage container. And he was telling everybody who would listen, God's about to, it's about to get real wet for real long and everybody's going to die. Did people believe Noah and heed the warnings? No. The same thing is going to happen leading up to the second coming of Jesus. There's going to be lots of warnings. We can read most of the book of Revelation. We can read the book of Daniel. We can read the Olivet Discourse. And these things are going to happen exactly how the Bible predicts they will happen. And people still will be surprised when Jesus actually returns. In the same way people were surprised when it actually started raining. You ever wonder how people could be so dense? Never underestimate people's desire that there really not be a God that they will be accountable to. There's a Danish philosopher, uh, Kierkegaard, who uh, he tells kind of a little parable. Here's how he understands this idea that the world's going to unfold exactly how God prescribed and people are still not going to believe it's happening while it's happening. He says it'll be like this. You ever been to a live theater? You ever been to a live theater? Imagine you're at a live theater and there's a variety show happening. And they just keep bringing one act out after another. And each act is more fantastical and unbelievable than the last. So it's like America's Got Talent, right? They just keep bringing one act after another, and they're harder to believe, and they're more amazing, and the crowd's going wild. And then the manager of the theater runs out toward the end and says, listen, the building is on fire. You've got to get out. But people think it's all just part of the act, and they just keep cheering and screaming, and he begs and he pleads, no, you've got to get out until he leaves right before the fire sweeps through the theater. And Kierkegaard says, Somehow the end of the world is going to be just like that, where exactly what God promises happens to the thunderous applause of a perishing people. Somehow, the second coming of Christ is going to be like the flood of Noah. People are going to ignore the warning signs. Another similarity in verse 39 They'll know nothing until they, they knew nothing until the flood came and took them all away. Again, is this it's just extremely sudden. And then I use the word violent in the title of the sermon. I want to show you one more similarity between the events leading up to Jesus' second coming and the flood of Noah. They knew nothing until the flood came and took them all away. It will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. Right? When Jesus returns, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. There will be two women grinding grain with a mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Don't read the rapture in those two verses if you're a student of eschatology. It's not the rapture. Jesus doesn't mention it. in the. Uh, that was a mystery revealed to Paul. The people who are taken away in verses 40 and 41 were taken away in the same way that people were taken away by the flood. Were people raptured by the flood of Noah? No, they were destroyed by the flood of Noah. Here's what Jesus is saying. The same way when the flood did come, it was bad, bad, bad 
for the people who were not being saved by God, when Jesus returns, it's going to be bad, 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 bad for people who are not being saved by God. One difference is that when Jesus returns, two men in the field, one will be taken away in judgment and one will be left. There will be at least a few more survivors. Some people will survive to repopulate the earth. I think that's what Jesus is teaching. So three things he taught. My second coming is an absolute certainty. The timing, though, is unknown. And it'll be a lot like the flood of Noah, and that will be extremely violent and surprising. People will not see it coming in spite of the warning signs. Now, here's where we ask a very important question about all that information. So what... How, if I'm not going to be here when all that happens, and if you're a believer in Jesus, I'm convinced you won't be. How should that teaching about something I won't be here for affect me in my life today? So what? I love it when the Bible gives the application for us. I don't have to tell you how this should affect us because Jesus tells us. Here's the signal. Therefore, verse 42 says, therefore, based on everything I've taught you up until this point, here's what you should learn. Here's how this should affect you. Stay alert. Why? Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But you know you don't want to be unprepared because it's going to be violent. Return of Jesus is going to be about God pouring out judgment on a world that deserves judgment. Only some people will be saved from that judgment. So you want to make sure you are prepared. Jesus says it this way. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been alert and would, have let, uh, let it, and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. We'll end with this illustration. I want to give you this illustration for what Jesus was saying there. I'm going to assume there are periods of times when you lock your doors. Even though we live in southwest Nebraska, do you lock your doors? When you go on vacation, when you leave, your house is going to be empty for a while. Do you lock your doors? When you go to bed at night, do you lock your doors? Whenever you lock your doors, why do you lock your Do you lock your doors? Because you have some sort of intel that you know, you have, you have heard from a reliable source that, that that is the night somebody, if that door is open, they're going to try to break in that time when you're gone. Is that why you lock your doors when you lock your doors? Because you do know when someone's coming? No, you make a habit of always locking your doors at the same time precisely because you don't know. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you do not know when I'm going to return. Now for us, here's an application. My assumption is I don't know 
but it's been true for the last 2,000 years. Everyone who has died over the last 2,000 years didn't make it until Jesus returned, right? And there's a very real possibility you or I will not make it before the end begins, correct? So we may stand before the Lord not when he returns, but when we die. I don't want to be morbid, but you know what, you know what Paul said about your death? He said, it is appointed for, for all people to die. You know what that means? It means your death isn't a possibility. It's an appointment. You don't know when your appointment is, but you're going to keep that appointment. And you are going to stand before the God of the universe. Every single person will. And what Jesus says here, after, you know, he teaches about some stuff that can seem weird. It can seem far out. It can seem like, man, I don't, I'm not sure about all that stuff. But he always goes back to this. You just make sure you're ready. You just make sure you are ready. And because you don't know when it's going to happen, when your appointment is, you need to make sure you're ready today. Overwhelmingly, the most important way you can be ready is to make sure that your, the, the death sentence you deserve for your sin has already been carried out on Jesus. That's the, that's the number one way you need to make sure you are ready. Because when every person meets the Lord, their sin's going to have to be paid for, either by them or it will have already been paid for by Jesus. For the rest of us, though, and here's what the rest of the Olivet Discourse, most of it's going to be about, is what it looks like to live ready to meet Jesus. I heard that this happened in a seminary class one time. We won't do it, but imagine I'm asking you to get out a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to make a line and divide that paper into two columns. On your right-hand column, I want you to make a list of the goals you have for your life. What would you write down? Then, on the, on the left-hand column, I want you to write down the list of goals you would have if you knew your appointment to meet the Lord was within the next year. If you knew your appointment to stand before the Lord was in the next 12 months, what would you want to be in your next 12 months? And the seminary professor who did this exercise with his students said this, if your lists are vastly different, you better take stock of some things. Because if we live all on this list, suddenly our appointment's gonna be there and we're gonna be like the person who didn't lock their doors. We're gonna be like, oh, I should have been, I knew I should have been locking my doors. I, now all my stuff's been stolen. I should have been in the habit of locking my doors. We don't want to stand before Jesus and say, man, I, I just never got around to doing that stuff on that other list. I thought I would make Christ my Savior and live for him, and I thought I'd have plenty of years when the kids left, when I, when, when I was retired, when I had more time, when I, whatever it is. 
Jesus says, make sure you're living for the correct list because we do not know when our appointment will come. We can just be darn sure that appointment is coming. It's a difficult truth, but it's truth. Would you pray with me and we'll close our time. Father God, thank you for the, uh, the reminder that we all have an appointment. Thank you that uh, you have the recipe for the end of this world already written out. Thank you that we can trust that you will bring this world to an end the way you want. But God, more than any of that, you reminded us today to live, to begin to live ready. God, help us take stock of what we want to have done for you when we stand before you and help us to more and more uh, build margin into our lives to fit those things in that we might be ready for our appointment. And thank you, God, that through faith in Christ and by your grace, there will be no condemnation for the appointment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus by faith. In his name we pray. Amen.